Today's scripture reading will be coming from Joshua chapter 6, verses 15 through 27. Verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set it up its gates. Set up its gates, excuse me. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is the word of the Lord. There are uh, two words parents utter that tend to bring, that tend, excuse me, to be the source of both uh, joy and disappointment in the lives of their children. Those words are, I promise. When parents promise ice cream or to go to the movies, 
children often take those promises to the bank. And they are left with joy and anticipation about the fulfillment of that promise. But too many parents often know that, <laughs> that, that those promises tend to, to get broken, leading to great discouragement and even some uh, disappointment. That's why I personally, I personally try not to promise anything uh, to my children. Um, I, I prefer to use uh, like uh, more non-committal answers like uh, maybe <laughs> or, or we'll see. <laughs> but, but there's a problem with that, isn't, that, isn't there? Because when I say maybe or we'll see, my kids here, I promise. <laughs> I promise. It really is a no-win situation. Relationships, not just the parent-to-child relationships, but husband-to-wife and best friends, uh, employee-to-employer, are built on commitments to one another. And therefore, a level of trust is developed between the two parties as they begin to do life um, together. Sadly, because we are fickle and because we are people that break our promises and don't often keep our commitments, trust in those relationships gets broken. And therefore, we begin to be wary or even skeptical of other relationships. All of this as a result of us, our inability to keep our promises and the commitments that we make to one another. Well, brothers and sisters, that is not true with God. He is a promise-keeping God. You, you don't ever have to worry about God forgetting. You don't ever have to worry about him getting too busy. You don't ever have to worry about him not having enough resources or giving you non-committal answers. When God makes promises, you can take those promises to the bank. And while that is comforting reality for some, that is a terrifying truth for others. We see those two factors, the promises of God being a comforting reality for some and a terrifying truth for others. We see those two play out vividly in our text this morning. But before exploring these promises, let's, let's catch up to where we are in the narrative. Uh, you could, would remember a couple of weeks ago, Brother Pasquale, uh, a couple of weeks ago, did an excellent job exploring the point of this particular narrative. You know, too often when we talk about or think about Joshua and the battle of Jericho, we, we focus on the walls uh, coming down. We focus on the marching. And we miss what God was seeking to communicate in this text. And as Pasquale mentioned, the people spent six days marching around the wall. There's no, no strategizing here. They're just, they're just, they're just marching, no, no fighting. God, as Pasquale said, wanted to teach the people how to walk with him. To understand that any victory that they were going to have over Jericho and the Canaanites was going to come by his power and might and not theirs. This was the sole reason for the command. 
to march six times around the wall. Would these people, would the Israelites, would they trust God? When, when the plan seemed odd, when the, when the great, just march around the wall, when the greatest military minds of the time would have looked at that strategy, strategy and made fun of them, would they obey God and walk with him? I think this is the, what the writer wants to communicate to us. He wants to communicate to us that they, in fact, did. They trusted God. They followed the commands of the Lord to a T. We see that in Joshua 6 and verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. Those, those were the instructions that God gave to Joshua. Those were the instructions that Joshua then commanded to the people. And these are the instructions that the people uh, followed. On the seventh day, instead of marching around the city just once, on that seventh day, they were to march around the city seven times, and at the sound of the trumpet, they were to shout and be led into the promised land. They did not waver from that plan at all. We see it followed to a T here. Now, this isn't the first time the reader has, has done this, where we hear God give the commands to Joshua, we see him tell the people the exact words of the Lord, and the people follow just as they had heard. And then their obedience to that word is followed with success. Now, now please do not miss the point being made here. God is keeping his promise to Joshua and to the people. He's keeping his, his promise. Remember what God had told Joshua in chapter 1? When Joshua assumed leadership over Israel, he was hesitant and he was fearful about having to lead this, these people into uh, the land. And so he had doubts. But here's what God, God told Joshua. He told him to be careful to do all that he commanded, to not turn to it to the right or, or to the left. And if he did that, God would grant him much success. And the people assured Joshua that they were on board. When we read in Joshua 1, 16 through 17, all that you have commanded us, we will do. This is what the people told Joshua. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Joshua and the children of Israel were obedient uh, to the Lord. What Israel demonstrates here, brothers and sisters, is that we obey the word of the Lord because that is what he commands us to do. When he, when he commands us to obey the word, he expects that we would obey him when he commands us to do things. No questions asked. But you do realize that we have another motivation 
for being obedient to the word of God. We obey because we know that in obedience, there is blessings. There are blessings attached to obedience. And the God whom we obey is a promise-keeping God. Deuteronomy 28 and 1, God says this through Moses. And if you faithfully, speaking to the people, obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, if you obey, then there will be blessings. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. They would have success for their obedience. Isaiah 1 and 19. The prophet says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good fruit of the land. Now that sounds like blessing to me for their obedience. Now, it's important to remember that we do not use these things to manipulate God. All right, God, I've, I've obeyed you. I've been obedient. Now you owe me something. No, we obey God because he is good. Because he is a gracious father and he delights to shower his children with gifts, to continue to bolster their faith and their trust in him so that when you obey, there are blessings attached. Or the obedience is just not in the doing. It's in the trusting. It's in the trusting. The people believed God. That is why they marched. That is why they shouted. When it seemed foolish to everyone around them, when it didn't make any sense, they trusted in that plan because they believed God. They believed that he would say he would do what he said he would do. Remember, he had brought them across the mighty Jordan River. Why should they doubt him now? He had promised them victory over their enemies. He told Joshua in chapter 1 that everywhere he put his foot in the land was going to be his. And you know what? God did not disappoint at all. We read this in Joshua 6 and 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Huh, there, there's victory. Listen, God, God brought those walls down, but he did it through the means of their faith-filled obedience. It's their their faith-filled obedience that led to the crumbling of those walls. And, and how, do we, how do we know this? It's because of what the writer to the Hebrews tells us. In Hebrews 11 and 30, speaking of the Israelites who marched around Jericho, it says, 
by faith, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. God rewarded the trust of the people with success. They had victory over Jericho, just as he had promised. These, these, these seemingly insurmountable walls of Jericho came tumbling down with just the shout of their voices. There was victory as God had promised over the Canaanites. But you must understand that this is not the point of the text, actually. <laughs> that's, that's not the point of the text. In, in, in fact, the writer does not give much attention to the walls coming down. I mean, I know we sing the songs like Joshua went around, around seven times and the walls came tumbling down, right? There's a lot of emphasis on the fact that the walls came tumbling down, but the writer here does not spend a lot of time talking about the walls coming down. You, you would think that at this victory there would be a great celebration, like, like the song that was sung after the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt crossed the Red Sea and they broke out into praise and celebration. It's, we don't see a celebration like uh, or dancing like David danced when he recovered the Ark of the Covenant from the, from the Philistines. There's none of that celebration. There's not a lot of hoopla over the fact that the walls came tumbling down. The reason that is, is because the battle of Jericho is not so much about the promise of victory as it is about the promise of judgment and salvation. It's about judgment, the promise of judgment, but also the promise of salvation. That's the point of this text. There's the promise of judgment. The blessing of victory for God's people would mean the terror of judgment for the people of Jericho. We read this in Joshua 6, 20 and 21. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. I must admit that these are difficult verses to read this morning. They're, they're, they're difficult. It's hard to reconcile. Seems like there is uh, the mass, uh, God commands the mass genocide of these people in Jericho. It's this text, and others like it, that we find in Deuteronomy of God telling the Israelites what would happen to the people of Canaan when they went into the land. It has caused many to question the love of God. It has caused others to deny the faith. 
It is fodder for atheistic arguments against the existence of God. You just, you just go turn on any debate uh, between a Christian and an atheist, and this question of the mass uh, genocide of the Canaanites, that question amongst atheists comes up all the time. These are, these are hard truths to read and to contemplate and to think about this morning. As I mentioned, we just don't have the, we don't have the privilege of skipping over difficult passages. So what are we to do with these things? Well, well, one thing is for sure is that we do not want to shy away from talking about it. Like this is uh, the, the cousin that we don't want to talk about, right? No, no, no. No, what we, what we read in the Scriptures is real history. I know you like to think of it perhaps as a, as a, as a storybook, but this is real history that we have in the Scriptures. This really happened. And it happened at the command of God. And so as Christians, as believers, we shouldn't shy away from these things. We, we need to address the question head on. The questions that people have about this text. Does, does this prove that God is unjust and unloving? Does this prove that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament? And is this the way we are supposed to treat our enemies today? These are, these are all good, good questions, valid, valid questions, and I won't pretend or even try to, 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 to answer or to believe I'm, I'm bold enough to answer all the questions that, that you have of these texts today and that other people have of them. But perhaps... I can give you some categories to help process these things and, and maybe help you study a little further and, and dig a little deeper on these, these things. A helpful starting place is to approach these verses with a clear understanding of the nature and the character of God and the nature and the character of humanity. Here is what we first need to understand about God. God is just. He is a God of justice. The only reason you and I have a category for, for uh, justice is because God is just. We can't, the only reason we're able to look at something that we consider unjust and call it unjust is because God is just. He defines justice for us. Deuteronomy 32 and 4. The rock, speaking of God, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's God. And so, when we come to this text, that's just one verse. We can speak, go a number of verses where it speaks of God's justice. But what we can't do is come to this text and conclude that God is unjust. Because that is not in keeping with his character, nor is it the testimony that we have in Scripture. Since God is just, since God is just, he has every right and authority to carry out judgment on the unjust and those who live contrary to his law. 
Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. The Canaanites, the people of Jericho, were deserving of judgment. The land, the land of Canaan, and even in Jericho, was replete with idol worship. It was full of child sacrifices. Children, their, their own children, sacrificing to their idols. Had cult prostitution was rampant in the land. So polluted was this nation that Joshua declares in our text in Joshua 6 and 26, listen to what he declares. He laid an oath on them at that time saying, curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its, its gates. This Joshua says, do not, we don't want this to revisit this place again. The people of Jericho wanted nothing to do with Yahweh. And because of this behavior, God had promised that judgment was coming. And before you think that God was uh, uh, not gracious or, or didn't show mercy to these people, and he had given them 400 years of mercy, in fact. In Genesis 15 and 16, God declares, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Speaking of Israel, this is now what hap what's happening. They will come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God was going to revisit their sin. For over 400 years, God was gracious with the Canaanites. They, they could have repented, but what he promised in Gen Genesis 15 was about to come to fruition. The testimony of Scripture is that what the people of Canaan were receiving was just punishment for their sin. Here's the deal, brothers and sisters. Here's the reality. No one gets away with sin. They don't get away with it. It always gets judged and punished rightly. From the smallest white lie, to the egregious, most heinous sin known to man. God never, God does not turn a blind eye to it. That sin will either be judged and punished and, and dealt with uh, on judgment day, or it will be paid for or has been paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. Christian, remember, God doesn't turn a blind eye to your sin. He doesn't take your sin and kind of turn a blind eye and, 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 and sweep it under the rug and turn his back. 
No, no, your, your gossip, your, your greed, your, your lies that, that, that you often some, succumb to even as followers of, of Jesus, is, is, it's not swept under the rug. Jesus bore that sin on the cross. He was punished for it. Isaiah 53 and 6 tells us that God laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity, the sins, your pride, your, your gossip, your lies, your lust, your worry. He took that and laid it upon Jesus on the cross. Christ was judged and punished for it. Oh, no one ever gets away with sin. What you have here in Joshua is a foreshadow of the judgment that is to come. <laughs> you and I should look at this, should read this account, and remember that all, all sin gets punished. And that there is truly, there is definitely a judgment that is to come. Because God is a just God. But even still, perhaps you're wondering if this is a foreshadow. Did this example need to be so extreme? Is it necessary to wipe out the entire nation? I mean, the text says women and children. God said that they were to devote the inhabitants of the land to destruction. The Hebrew term here is harem. Harem warfare was, was a common practice in the ancient Near Eastern world. When nations would invade other nations, their, their strategy was to completely wipe those nations out. So the Canaanites, I mean, excuse me, the Israelites were not alone in this practice, even still. God commands to devote to destruction the people of Canaan. Did not have anything to do with dominance or, or rash violence but had everything to do with holiness. With holiness. God tells them as much when he gives the instruction to, about these devoted things in verse 18 of our text. But you keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the, them, make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, and bring trouble upon it. Well, this is in keeping. This is in keeping with what God had commanded the people through Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12. It's, it's a little lengthier passage, but it's important to the context. Moses, or God instructing Moses, says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall, be, shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer 
or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. God didn't want the, those in the land to influence his people. God's desire was to have a holy people in a holy land for the purpose of holy worship. That was his goal. So leaving remnants in the land would tempt his people to adopt and influence the practices of the land. So he commands them to devote them to destruction. Brothers and sisters, isn't this how Jesus works when he comes into your life? He is not interested in sharing your heart with other idols. He doesn't come in seeking to play nice with your, your sin. He seeks to root it out, no matter how hard we try to hold on to it. I, I remember when, I, when, when the Lord first saved me, I, re, I remember wanting to hang on to some, some stuff. Like, I, I, I remember, I remember saying it, I, I mean, I'm ashamed to admit it now, but I do remember saying it. Well, Lord, you could have that, but this, I'm going to keep. <laughs> I'm going to hold on to this. Seeks to root it out. Jesus desires that his people would be holy. And there is no denying that drastic measures need to be taken in order for that to be so. Listen to the language. Listen to the language that is used in Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So we're to put it to death. The picture being painted here in the destruction of Canaan is what should be taking place with our sin. You and I need to be vigilant with, with those things in our, in our lives that are contrary to the things of God. What we shouldn't do is think that this text is a justification for Christians to take up arms against other religions. Brothers and sisters, God is not... Not giving us license to take up arms or destroy, uh, destroy another people, group, or religion. All, all, all in the name of holiness. The church is not supposed to be declaring holy war on nations. In fact, our posture when we come to this text shouldn't be yeah, yeah, those, those Canaanites, they, they got what they deserved. They got what they had. They had coming to them. It should be. How should I escape such judgment, knowing that I'm just as wicked as the Canaanites? And that is the other category that helps us understand this text better. We need to know the character and the nature of humanity. 
Brothers and sisters, all, 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 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. We all, we all deserve punishment for our sins. Just like the Canaanites, we all deserve to be judged and punished for our sins. So when we come to this text, Here's what we need to do. We're thinking about, which we often do, who, asking the question, who am I in this, in this text? Who am I in this account? We are putting ourselves in this story. If there is a character you and I should most see ourselves like, it is Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. It is through Rahab that we see that God is not only, that he not only promises judgment is coming, he promises salvation is coming too. This is the salvation that Rahab doesn't deserve, nor do you and I, especially in light of who we are. Joshua 6.17, In the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, God is just, but the Bible also tells us that God is full of grace. He is full of compassion. He is full of mercy. And that is on full display in the life of Rahab. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 tells us that the Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. <laughs> Rahab is a, is a Canaanite woman in all that that means. She was an active participant in the culture and perpetuated the evil and vile practices of the land. If you remember back in chapter 2, <laughs> When Joshua sent the spies into land, uh, Rahab was, was kind to the spies, and she, she hid them because she feared the God of Israel. Her helping the spies led them to promise her mercy when the army of Israel came to devote the land to destruction. To ensure her sparing, Rahab was to hang a, a scarlet cord in her window, and when the the soldiers were to see the sword as they were attacking the city. The, the soldiers would pass over her house, and all those who were in the house would be spared. I want you to think about Rahab's faith in this situation. The last thing she was told by these soldiers was that they were coming to destroy the land. That if she wanted to be spared, all she had to do was hang a red cord out the window. I know in our Bibles it was only four chapters ago, but you know it was longer than four chapters ago. This was some time. Rahab had to wait. She didn't know when the city would be destroyed. When would they come? Would they come at night? Would everybody get the memo? Would everybody know that when they see the red cord that they were to pass over my, my house? Fearful. They'd be able to know that I was to be saved. I'm sure her faith was tested. Perhaps you can relate to the challenge of believing God. As I said, as we know, the Bible says that judgment is coming. 
The writer to the Hebrews says that it is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. God is coming back and there is going to be just punishment doled out. But if you are a Christian this morning, like, like, Ray, like Rahab, you have been told that you will be safe. That you are going to be protected from the punishment that is to come. And all you need to do is trust and plead the precious blood of Jesus. And if we do that, if you do that, you are promised salvation from the wrath that is to come. Question is, do you believe it? Do you trust the blood that was shed for you? Do you trust Jesus when he says you will be spared? I know, I know it's, it's difficult because like Rahab, you and I have to wait. We don't know when judgment's coming, but we know it's coming. And at times it is hard to believe that and our faith, just like Rahab, is tested. Is he really coming back? I mean, there's some people out here with some strong, I mean, is he really coming back? Will he, be, will he change his mind about me? I, I've done some things since I was, I was promised salvation. Is he, is he, is he going to change his mind about me? Perhaps, perhaps my sin will be too much for him to overcome. Will my faith hold out? Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Thankfully, our faith does not rest on how little or weak it is. It rests on the one who promised. Our salvation rests on the one, the one who promised. Doesn't, all, all Rahab had to do was have enough faith to put that cord out her window. The command would come from Joshua to save her. Joshua 6.25, but Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out the land. All she had to do was put that cord out the window. And you know what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 about Rahab and her faith? Verse 31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Oh, brothers and sisters, your faith this morning may be hanging on by a thread. You're, you're, you're questioning. You're wondering. But all you need to know is that God promised to save you. And when Judgment Day comes, it won't be Joshua telling the army of the Lord to spare you. It will be Jesus himself. Because he who promised is faithful. You and I will be saved from judgment. And you know what you can do with that promise? You could take that to the bank and cash it every time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that you are indeed a just God. But you're also a God that is full of mercy. 